Should I introduce Chris as a mutual friend? <laughs> You've already said he's the father of your dog, so I think the <laughs> cat's true. out of the bag. Mutual friend. <laughs> Husband of the pod. Yes. everyone and welcome to Reader's Digress, the podcast where we read nonfiction books so that you don't have to, unless you want to. I'm Kate Kiriaku. And I am Molly Fox. And today we are going to be talking about Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber by Mike Isaac. And we have a special guest here today, husband of the pod, Chris. (laughs) Welcome. Hi, everyone. I'm Kate's husband. (laughs) Just to clarify. (laughs) You're the husband of the pod. Let's I, be real. I do appreciate being called the husband of the pod. I think that's a pretty unique title. I don't know that anyone else in all of podcast history has that title. And if they do, I don't want to meet them. <laughs> if they do, they're just not as good as us. So we'll move past it. Uh, so, yeah, we're talking about Super Pumped. And we are super pumped. <laughs> Hell yes. But before we before we start and before, Kate, you do your summary there's something that i need to get off my chest and it is that (laughs) lay it on us (laughs) so when i first started reading this book or like when i saw the title i assumed that by super pumped they meant like supercharged and then you get to about page 12 and you realize (laughs) that that is in fact not the case and they're using the word super pumped as in super excited and i have never been more devastated (laughs) (laughs) Molly, I think you're burying the lead. They're not just using it in that way. It's one of the core tenets of Uber as a corporation. (laughs) It is literally one of their, what, 12? Their Mm -hmm. principles or values, exactly. Is that you must be all the time hustling and super (laughs) pumped. So anyway, I've not stopped screaming (laughs) since. (laughs) Since realizing my head has been on fire. (laughs) So anyway, now that I've said that, Kate, please take it away. All right. So let's start with a brief summary of the book. Uh, As we have mentioned, we are talking about Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber by New York Times technology journalist Mike Isaac. This book is the story of a tech startup called Uber and its founder, Travis Kalanick. But it's also a case study of the tech bro culture and founder worship in Silicon Valley, the perils of overambition and the incredible economics of venture capital investments. If you're like me, you may be aware of about half of this story already. Travis Kalanick was ousted from his CEO role as the founder of Uber in 2017 after a series of terrible PR stunts and worrying business practices came to light one after another. As a fun fact, Mike Isaac, who wrote the book, actually broke that story. I'm not going to recount all of these terrible practices because there are way too many. And as I was writing this summary, I started to realize that if I was recounting all of them, I would just end up rewriting the book which did not seem like a good use of my time. So (laughs) I am just going to share a few pieces of context to set the stage for our conversation today. Uh, The first is that Uber was not Kalanick's first startup. He started out at Scour, which was the non-music equivalent of Napster, and later founded Red Swoosh, which, ugh, 
terrible name. I gross, hate that. Disgusting. <laughs> so gross. Never say swoosh to me ever again. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Uh, which functioned similarly to Napster. He sold Red Swoosh for about $20 million, personally netting $2 million, which would be the seed investment for Uber. Because of the timing, Kalanick's launch of Uber coincided with the crash of the early 2000s dot-com bubble in Silicon Valley, and thus the disappearance of a lot of competition, as well as the popularity of the first iPhone, which would prove vital to Uber's success. The App Store allowed Uber to be downloaded and used widely, which prior to smartphones in the App Store wasn't possible. The second thing is that Uber expanded extremely rapidly. The company was founded in 2009. 12 years later, it's active in over 900 cities globally, which... Wow, I had to look that up. Uh, And this is important for two reasons. The first is that it's a major reason why Uber had issues controlling its work environment and workers. Uber had it all. Workplace, drug use, sexual harassment, suicide from being overworked, taxi driver theft, uh, and damage of Uber cars, murder, which we'll talk about, surveillance, data breaches, and constant legal issues. But the second reason why it's important that it expanded extremely rapidly is that it also raked in an incredible amount of venture capital or startup investment money in the company. At Kalanick's departure, it was valued at over $70 billion. Although Mike Isaac mentioned Silicon Valley's undaunting belief in meritocracy, he does not really contextualize this point beyond the demographics of Uber and other tech startups. Um, But I'm throwing this in because I recently learned it and I have to tell people about it. (laughs) Um, But I recently learned that uh, only 1% of venture capital funding goes to black founders. So I feel like that's just, yeah, important to recognize. So with that, uh, who would like to start us off with their key takeaway? My list of key takeaways is just like three things that I like crossed out. So I'm gonna let Chris take it. <laughs> Wait, <from> what? <laughs> I, I can I can go in with a key takeaway if you don't have it. Yeah, yeah, you go first, Chris, because I like I have one, but I struggled. Is what I will say. <laughs> <laughs> it it is a wide ranging book. Um, yes, there's there's a lot to talk about. I think that the key takeaway that most resonated with me was. I was struck at how much our world has become uberfied. Uh, I oh. <laughs> I was talking about this with Kate a little bit, but when uh, we first moved to our current city, um, it was still I don't know if illegal is the right word, but you were not allowed to order an Uber to the airport. Uh, you know, something like that, which it just kind of just a few years later sounds absolutely crazy, but I think it's indicative that the entire environment in terms of ride sharing, in terms of uh, just how we uh, interact with apps and interact with um, a lot of these sort of like convenience type uh, services has been revolutionized by Uber. And the book does a really good job of showing you what that pre-Uber landscape is versus now. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me kind of of the way in the early 2000s the word google became a verb like basically Mm -hmm. overnight because now we say often it's the uber for blah 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 like it's the uber for takeout or whatever and this is a little uh self-congratulatory statement but back in 2017 i deleted uber because of all the bad press i was like well i'm not going to use this anymore can't wait to talk and about I only, that. <laughs> yeah, like I only use ex- exactly. <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm pretty amazing, um, but I only used Lyft, and 
I would say like, well, I'm going to get a lift or whatever. And people wouldn't understand what I meant. And so I switched back to just saying like, I'm getting an Uber, even though I was like, Ugh, no one knows that I'm better than this now. But <laughs> it, it is one of those words that has become, that's what it means to get a ride share. And mm-hmm. it's like a monopoly, even though it's not the only one that exists. Yeah, and I think it's funny because in the book he writes that at the beginning of Uber, they were actually known as the Airbnb of ride-sharing. Yeah, that's (laughs) right. (laughs) It's really fun to, like, watch that evolution and watch them become exactly what you're saying, the... The Google uh, of everything. Yeah, exactly. The company for their field rather than being known as the something of something else. Yes, you know, I would also say to Molly's point, I also deleted the Uber app from my phone in 2017, 2018, somewhere around there. Uh, and, you know, virtue signaled with Lyft. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I ended up actually downloading the Uber app again in 2019 because I came across some data that in actuality, uh, there wasn't a big difference um, between Uber and Lyft statistics with regards to um the people that like actually use the rides, like in terms of sexual assault numbers or violence numbers, they're pretty similar. Um, so, you know, I was happy to see that Uber had different leadership and between that and realizing that in fact, Lyft is not necessarily that much better. I ended up just downloading it again, which I also think maybe tells you something. There isn't a lot of choice for the consumer. You kind of have two <laughs> yeah. options yeah. or your local taxi service if there even is one left. And there probably isn't. And <laughs> Uber and Lyft are pretty big reasons why that they're not around. Yeah, there's a reason. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and they talk a lot about in the book Travis's strategy and how it was all about streamlining the process. So even though taxis have come a ways since what they were before Lyft shares, they're still much clunkier a process than it -hmm. is to just call something from your phone and pay it with your phone and do all of that. So it it is, it is weird how it's like, it started out that a a ride share was kind of like a little bit gross and not, I know in the book they talk about it starting as a luxury service, but by the time I was using it, it was like, this is going to be a a nasty ass (laughs) Toyota Corolla with like gum stuck to the seat. But now in my mind, I'm like, ew, a taxi? Like, ew. Even though it's like, what are you talking about? That's got more germs than the right. It's so stupid. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny how public perception has shifted like that because I 100% agree. The first time that I got in an Uber, I think it was, you know, so dirty and it had like their pet hair in the back seat like my own car does yeah it was dirty and disgusting (laughs) and I'm pretty sure they didn't have air conditioning it was just a whole thing um and now of course I think people expect when you get into an uber and at least in a city as large as the one that we live in that Mm -hmm. you they're offering you water they're like gum yeah they're treating it like a mini bar in their <laughs> right. car they're like, treating what? it more like a professional service than it's ever been which is hilarious yeah. because it started out as an actual professional service and then has yeah. come full circle almost <laughs> it's also so funny because like anytime i'm offered like the water or gum mints whatever it is that they offer i'm always like no thank you because there's there's a part of my like very frugal brain that's like i don't want them to charge me for that <laughs> it's like <laughs> 
literally can't charge you for it. Like, what are you talking about? But I'm like, no, 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 no. We brought our own snacks. Thank you. Like, what you am I You like, your Midwestern mom tote bag <laughs> yes, with, like, exactly. a full bag of popcorn for the movies. <laughs> That's, actually, that does kind of remind me. It was really interesting that for the longest time you could tip the driver and lift but not in the uber app yeah and so you're right molly like they in a literal sense could not charge you but maybe there was a bit of an expectation that you know you might tip in cash especially in an uber where you didn't couldn't use the app for that i'm really sorry i never tipped in cash to any of my uber drivers Absolutely. before it was available i'm so. skeptical anyone ever did yeah I think that's why the drivers were fighting so hard to get that feature on the Uber app because nobody was pulling out cash when you didn't have to do it to pay for the ride. Like, why would you do that? Yeah. I think, like, also the part of the reason I was so, like, against accepting anything, like a drink or whatever, is because as a woman, I'm like, I don't want anyone to think that I owe them anything more than they already think I owe them all the time. (laughs) So there's, like, a guy Lyft driver and he's like, you want a bottle of water? It's like, absolutely not, sir. You're taking me to my destination and I'm getting out of here alive. Like, you just have like a sign attached to the front of you that says this is a business transaction. <laughs> Do not talk to me. <laughs> that, I am the person in a lift that's like, if you even think we're going to have a conversation, you are insane. What does my face tell you about who I am yeah. as a person? Do not talk to me. I found it really funny when they put in that feature that was like, toggle the switch if you want to yeah. not talk to your Lyft driver or whatever but I yeah. kind of get it why they did that because a lot of the drivers are very outgoing and they want to mm-hmm. have conversations and that's kind of why they're doing this job yeah yeah I always appreciate the driver that will go ahead and tell you their life story or <laughs> <laughs> I will say that I prefer that over being harassed with questions <laughs> You know, uh, yeah, if I'm being that's honest. true. Yeah. I would rather like a stream of consciousness. Absolutely. Because you can hit them with the, uh, damn, that's crazy. <laughs> no matter yeah. what it was. They're like, I Whoa. went to the grocery yesterday. You're like, wow. damn, that's crazy. <laughs> damn. Yeah, that's absolutely true. All right. Well, uh, should I share my key takeaway, Molly, Please. if you still need some more time? Yeah, go for it, Kate. I won't put you on the spot and make you share it if you're... I was no, I have talking one. about this. No. I am getting an Uber Eats notification, which will tell you that I also re-downloaded the app. <laughs> you guys are sellouts. I'm a Lyft-only girl yeah, for a We are. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, um, so my key takeaway was more about the kind of founder worship that I was really interested in because, let's be honest, everything in Silicon Valley is a cult. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, my key takeaway was that the skills to conceive of something or get it off the ground are very different than the skills to grow and sustain something. And I think there, Travis Kalanick was a very good founder in the sense that his killer be killed mindset really propelled Uber to what it became. But at the same time, when you get to a certain level, that killer be killed mentality becomes a hindrance instead of advantageous. And he really could not adapt. Like he was just that one person and there was absolutely no hope that he was going to suddenly pivot and become somebody that was more grounded and able to reason better. That was just not who he was. Yeah. Well, and like you said, it doesn't translate if 
if you start out scrappy and small and you have to fight, once you're like a behemoth that has nuclear weapons, metaphorically, it's no longer appropriate for you to be like fighting everyone and scrappy. <laughs> yeah. Like, what are you talking about? You're going to kill everyone. And that's kind of what happened. You know, they got so powerful, but they kept having that mentality of like, we're the little guy. And it's like, mm-hmm. you are not, sir. <laughs> Yeah, 100%. It reminded me of, like, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. How, like, at the oh, yeah. bottom, you're just fighting to to stay alive. And then Uber was kind of at the top at the point that Kalanick left. And yeah. yet he was still fighting for survival. And it's like, God, dude, you survived. You need to move <laughs> on. Like, just make sure that it, like, is sustainable. Make sure your workers are not in terrible conditions. Like, Maybe let's move on to a different goal other than just, like, be the only ride-sharing app. I I think you bring up a good point, too, because if you look back at the financial journalism around 2015-ish, um, you know, Uber was the largest private venture capital-funded company ever. And there was legitimate talk of, like, why can't Uber just stay private forever? Like, obviously, the investors wanted to cash out but so much of what Uber was doing of this radical expansion into new markets and growth at any cost and what have you, it seemed uniquely suited for being privately held and that they could just continue doing this exact thing. Um, and frankly, to Kate, to your point, Travis's mismanagement in this phase is kind of what undid him. Oh, yeah. Uh, if, he, if he hadn't kind of bungled this process, he probably would have stayed on. And do they IPO when they end up IPOing? I kind of don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a bit of an unanswered question. So I'm maybe foreshadowing. <laughs> Wait, I a have bit. a follow-up question to this, Chris. So yeah. you mentioned an IPO, which is an initial public offering for people who yes. don't know. Yes. But can you answer? So Chris has some expertise in like stocks and finance stuff. And what I didn't understand or know when I was reading this, and of course did not bother to look up, was... <laughs> When you go public and you start selling shares of your company to the public, yes, how is it decided like how many shares there are? Is there like a limit of how many shares you can sell? And like, does that question make sense? That's yeah. a good question. That is a good question. Uh, it is a little bit nebulous. Uh, okay. You, in theory, an initial public offering doesn't just allow the existing shareholders to sell on the open market. It can also mm-hmm. raise additional financing through okay. brand new shares. So basically, whatever the new shares are that get issued that didn't exist before, the company just gets that money in cash. And then they can use that to expand, to buy another company, you know, what have you. Okay, um, okay. So they, they, I don't know specifically for Uber, but they could have issued in the initial public offering, they could have issued more shares than there were before. And thus, they would have been able to have an influx of cash in addition to the existing shareholders being able to sell if they wanted to. It might also be worth noting the specific kind of structure for founders and their shares that comes up in the story of Uber because they were among the first companies that had this different kind of structure for founders and how many shares the founder had of the company. So I'm going to put you on the spot and make you explain that. (laughs) So it's called dual class voting shares. Uh, Although it doesn't have to be two classes. It can be more than that. But dual class voting shares are such a thing where basically like 
all the shares entitle all the shareholders to the same amount of profit. But when it comes time to like vote on certain you know company policies or like who gets to be on the on the board of directors or what have you, um, some shares have more votes than others. So case in point, uh, I, I don't know the exact breakout, but I believe at Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg's shares have 10 votes and everybody else's shares have one vote. So if you vote for the board of directors, right, you get one vote, but effectively whoever Mark Zuckerberg, whatever he decides to vote is what happens. Because Mm -hmm. even though he doesn't control a majority of shares, he controls a majority of the votes. So it's a little bit complicated, but that is, and it was a very similar structure at Uber. This is extremely common among uh, tech startups. I, this was part of the big issue at, uh, 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 I'm blanking on the real estate leasing company. Airbnb? No, real estate leasing. Oh, oh, um, WeWork. Yes, that was one of the big problems at WeWork uh, was that- <laughs> They the, had all the, the problems. The, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, which is a separate yeah. podcast. But, <laughs> but effectively, you end up in a situation where the founder has veto power over everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but from just reading this book and having no other knowledge about technology startups ever, this was a new kind of structure for voting shares. Is that correct? No, it had, not exactly. Then I'm going to cut that out. (laughs) No, you can keep it. Because I don't know what I'm talking about. It it had been done before. Uh, It had been done at Facebook. It had been done at Google. Oh, I'm sorry. That's what I meant. Like, they, it was new to tech startups. Oh, yes. It was not something that you would have seen at a different, like, business. Yeah, you you don't see a lot of uh, non-tech businesses have this structure. Okay, so I was kind of right. No. I guess I'll keep it in. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's, uh, it's rare, but not unheard of. Okay, yeah. gotcha. So I, I guess, like, follow up to my question, and we can... We can cut this if it's like too much, but for my own, we're just gonna thoughts. cut the whole podcast out. <laughs> doing Q and about business it's stuff. It's just gonna be Chris <laughs> explaining those two things, and then you and I aren't gonna be in the podcast. By at the all. end of this, by the end of this, I'm helping on taxes. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, so, if like you said, you can just you can offer more shares, and that they can sell those for cash, uh-huh. but isn't isn't there there has to be a limit otherwise they could just keep issuing shares and wouldn't it dilute it so it it does dilute well it potentially dilutes it okay in theory doesn't because the company is receiving an asset in return and the asset is cash um so in theory the existing shareholders should not see the value of their shares go down in practice they very frequently do i actually was just talking about this um, they very frequently do because it's a signal uh, that the stock price is uh, maybe overvalued. And so the, it's attractive okay. for the company to take advantage of it. Uh, okay. But having said that, uh, to your point, the, the real demand, the real limit ultimately is investor demand, um, mm-hmm. which would cap out at some point. Now, also at a certain point, the board of directors would have to authorize you know, to keep raising more and more money through issuing shares. But no, mm-hmm. they, they could have issued quite a bit more if they felt like it. Okay, that makes sense. And this actually is like a good place for me to give my key takeaway. Yes. Give us your it key takeaways. Money related. <laughs> give us Stop. your key takeaways that you crossed out. 
money's hard and confusing and made up. <laughs> so the person who has a business minor. <laughs> God, a million years ago, of which I remember nothing. Out of undergrad, Molly and I had the same amount of business education. <laughs> that is, that but Molly... is a legitimate fact that is not a joke. <laughs> But Molly spent a lot more time drinking wine on Parisian rooftops than Chris did, which is why I make no money now. <laughs> okay, anyway, one of the ones that I wrote down as kind of a joke was just that the tech world is a cult, as you already stated. This. As I just said. Yeah. Um, we were okay, on the same so mine, Yeah. Mine, I thought of this in relation to, what was it, just recently a $27 million settlement in the George Floyd killing that his family received from the city. And I was listening to like an NPR podcast or something about it. And they said something about like, I mean, this is a stunning amount of money that, that, you know, this is unprecedented. And I was just like, 27, 27 million. That's like nothing. And then I was like, <laughs> why do I think that? And I, I, I think it is because in the tech world, and I just read this book and we've been hearing about the $1.9 trillion stimulus, whatever, in the tech world and the associated billions of dollars that go along with that, that much money does to perspective in running a business and a startup what a funhouse mirror does to our own reflections. Yes. <laughs> it, it starts to be meaningless when you have that much and it is in theory, never ending. It yeah. just, it's like, who gives a shit? 27 million? It's nothing. Also like, you know, not to minimize that that was for a life. And this is for like, what? So yeah. we can have like a slightly easier vacation or a slightly easier ride to the movie. Like this is not that serious. And it's still so much more money being flowed into these startups. And it's like, who cares about Uber at the end of the day? Like, they don't really do anything for people. Like, they, I don't know. One of my favorite writers is Matt Levine. He's a columnist at Bloomberg. He's a brilliant writer uh, regarding finance and investment, investing and whatnot. And he said something in, again, this timeline of 2015, 2016, that, you know, in Silicon Valley, startups will talk a lot about changing the world and these grand ambitions. And in reality, the majority of startup money is going to improving the lives of upper white middle-class men. Uh, and, you know, it's not simply Uber. Like at the time, some of the other big startups were like, yes, delivery, uh, uh, a faster service to get your clothes laundered uh, cool. because you didn't have the time, if you didn't have the time to do the laundry yourself. You're all wearing the hoodies. skill set. <laughs> yeah. even need that <laughs> Looking at you, men. But I mean, that, that startup received millions of dollars of funding. Yeah. I, seriously, it received millions of dollars of funding. There was another one based in Chicago that was actually in my building, and it got bought out by a Procter & Gamble for millions and millions of dollars. Like, that is where the money is going. Um, it's it's not grand. And you're right, Kate. Like, you know, George Floyd's family got this money at the cost of a life. Meanwhile, millions and millions of dollars, yes, it does flow to services meant to convenience, uh, you know, primarily a small group of people. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, like, obviously, to me personally, $27 million is a lot of money. But when you're talking about the money that would, exists... Would you quit your job if you got $27 million, Molly? Yes. In a, in a motherfucking party. Like, he screams into the microphone, yeah. jumps out the window. Like, like, uh, we're going to have to cut that so I don't get fired. Um, I think, I'm sorry, are you offering me? You should leave my question and then... We'll just have, like, I'll insert crickets. A, a yeah. cricket sound bite. No have comment, to... I plead the fifth. Because I no cannot no afford comment. to fired <laughs> um, okay but within okay within all that 27 million is a lot to me personally but one of the most stunning things that i read in this very stunning book was the the fact that while they were trying to quote-unquote conquer the chinese market which is a very difficult market for american tech startups to enter into i don't think it has been accomplished yet successfully um they were one of the ways they were competing with the other ride-sharing companies in China was by offering free rides, incentives to drivers. They were spending a lot of money on incentives, essentially. But not just a lot of money. In China alone, they were spending 40 to $50 million per week just on incentives. No operating costs, n- nothing else, just the incentives in China alone. I almost died reading that. <laughs> do you know what that yes. much money could do for people what also Ugh. that they're spending it in a in a different country and not spending it in a way that's necessarily helping anybody with anything it's yeah. just money they're giving away they're not even really helping their business that much like no because they didn't even successfully enter the market it was right. it was but a waste of money. <laughs> it was it was nothing. A waste of forty to fifty million dollars per week. <laughs> <laughs> per week, people. God. Yeah. Uh. And that's a great example, too, because as Kate pointed out, like everyone at a certain point is begging Travis to exit the market and he's refusing. Yeah. Yes. It, yeah. It was wild how many people advised him not to go to China and enter the market in the first place. The, the people giving then, him the money to do this yes. are effectively begging him to don't do it, to, do it, to not do it. <laughs> and Molly, to your question earlier... Because Travis had enough shareholder power through his his specific class of votes, no one could really force him into doing anything. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of getting to my key takeaway, which was that, again, he was not the right person to be making those decisions at that time. Right. Someone else with a better understanding of the market and a better understanding of how their money and time and effort and staff power would have been more efficiently spent here in America or maybe in a different market, but not in China, where the government is so restrictive to American businesses, it would have just made a huge difference. And it just doesn't make any sense. It makes me so angry that somebody would basically beat their head against a wall consistently for so many years and throw away so much money and so much staff time and power to ultimately get nothing. You got nothing out of this. You know, Travis had another uber poor tenant for that, which is always be hustling. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> another. I gotta go throw up. <laughs> he was super pumped to be throwing 40 to $50 million a week. <laughs> a week. We just can't say that. Just one more time for the people in the back. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, so I think all of that that we have said up until this point goes to my key takeaway, which is that this company and the CEO lost perspective, partially because they weren't the right fit and partially because they had so much money that it became meaningless to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Obviously, at a certain point after his great success with Uber in the beginning, I think you're right. It, it does become a point where you're just like, well, people will just keep giving me money because I'm good at asking for it and getting it. And mm-hmm. it just reminds me of that Parks and Rec meme with uh, John Ralphio's sister, who I'm forgetting her name, where she just sticks out her hand to her dad and says, money, please. And like that was basically Travis Kalanick for like a decade. But, but, okay, but... We have to say the other side of it, which is that venture capitalists kept giving yes, him that exactly. money. Yes, yes. Um, yes. You know. Even though he was, like, proving that he was not responsible with the money. like Right. It was just a faucet <sighs> that never turned off, though. Right. And Mike Isaac does a good point of showing that the terms for getting that money uh, eroded those shareholders' rights more and more as time went on. Yeah. Um, yeah. So as he was gain- getting more powerful... And also maybe a little bit more ridiculous with cash expenditures. He also was taking away the shareholders' rights to ever push back against him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which meant that he could just keep doing it more and more and right. spending on whatever he right. wanted. Vicious cycle. Yeah. Oh, another thing that I just wanted to mention is my my main critique of this book is that he doesn't use the word douche enough. <laughs> <laughs> You're so right. He doesn't use it at all. And how rude. <laughs> um, okay, so my my quote that is about the toxic work culture. And that was one of the, that was like 50% of the downfall. There was a lot of like mismanaging of the money, et cetera, et cetera. But a huge part of it was how things like harassment, assault, bullying, aggression were let to go unchecked and slowly that eroded trust and public support, etc. So they have gotten to a place in the company where Travis is going to take a step back and the board is announcing that to the company. And so they've had, they've called this whole company meeting oh, and no. Ari- oh, no. Ariana Huffington oh, no. is like <laughs> giving this whole speech. <laughs> you have to be quiet so she can explain this. <laughs> it is, oh no. Shut up. Uh, So Ariana Huffington is up on stage to address some of these toxic work culture problems. And one of the things she's announcing is that another woman is going to be on the board. And what she says about that is that there's a lot of data that shows when there's uh, one woman on the board, it is much more likely that there will be another on the board. And from her side, David Bonnerman, another board member, piped up. I'll tell you what it shows, he said. It's that it's much more likely that there will be more talking on the board. The room froze. <laughs> Had one of Uber's board members just made a sexist comment about women talking too much? Uh, the audience was stunned. Bonderman, a 75-year-old white billionaire hedge funder from Fort Worth, Texas, was dunking on women in the middle of the board's <laughs> company-wide presentation about changing Uber's misogynist culture. I so appreciate that wording because that's exactly what he thought he was doing. And the problem is it wasn't even a good sexist joke. It was such a dumb sexist joke. I, I still remember where I was when I read that on Twitter. Mike Isaac, I think, is the person who did break that. And I remember thinking it was a joke, like, like him tweeting that was a joke. I was like, there's no way 
in the last month where every story has been that Uber has a sexist work culture, there is absolutely no way that this this billionaire sitting on the stage <laughs> opened his stupid? mouth and clearly without thinking at all said this and then like, then i like started really thinking about it I'm like okay so no it makes sense that like an old guy like went ahead and said this <laughs> but then I, was, I started thinking about like what his react what his internal monologue was because i imagine that even the, for the most out of touch person in the world if they in the context of when he said it I, mm-hmm. how many seconds do you think in, until he's in his head just started going like oh my god no Oh no, what did I do? Oh no. Well, it wouldn't have been until the room was like reacting. I think that was immediate though. I mean, I. I yeah, that's true. I, I think under I think, five seconds. I think the I think whole under room five gasped. Seconds. <laughs> I think the whole room had immediately that thought, which was that you've got to be kidding me. When I read that, my jaw literally dropped because I was like, yes, I know sexism exists, obviously. I am a woman, I get it. <laughs> But I did not think, you know, there are those moments where you're just like, I did not think you were that stupid, that you would say this out loud on stage at a meeting about the fact that your company is sexist. Yes. Well, so this is my favorite part of this story. At the very last part of this paragraph, Mike Isaac says that Huffington tries to recover from this and she wants to continue talking about this internal report that they have produced about the various problems and so she stumbles a bit but she kind of gets it back and she goes so the final category that we're going to talk about is culture and then mike isaac says someone in the audience laughed aloud <laughs> like can you imagine <laughs> sitting there as we all collectively like, did yo women suck and then she's like anyway the last thing we're going to talk about is to- toxic work culture i would have laughed my absolute head off like i would have laughed and immediately quit as a woman exactly. <laughs> like, like, it's, you the, guys. it's the parks and rec quote that's like i want to throw up and kill myself <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> there's truly no like that I think is the best quote in the book to show just how little I would have liked to work at Uber uh, <laughs> or with real. Travis Kalanick uh, I I pulled a, a quote along the same veins which I'll read but it, I pulled it for the same reason which is just to show how toxic the culture was for the workers because I think a lot of times in 2017, when everything was happening, there was a lot of emphasis on the customer and how bad it was for the customers. And, you know, there was a lot of talk about sexual assault by drivers and, you know, some other things. But I don't think it was quite as focused on the people who worked at Uber. And this book really focuses on how bad it was for them. So Uber had Heaven, which was a mode where they could see a map in real time and see uber riders zooming across it and the crowd was really stunned he unveiled this at a a gathering and then while uber had heaven kalanick also held court over hell that was the nickname of one of uber's most highly guarded and extremely valuable internal programs hell was devised to monitor the locations of all uber drivers who also drove for lyft Uber employees at headquarters would create fake Lyft accounts, which tracked nearby vehicles, up to eight per fake account. Information about those vehicles was then sent back to Uber and stored in a database. 
Howell created a way for Uber to monitor the real-time positions of Lyft drivers. And because many of those drivers worked for Uber as well, Uber could monitor the rates Lyft was offering for drivers and outbid them, thereby swaying drivers to work more regularly for Uber. Hell, as Sullivan saw it, was sneaky. It was also highly unethical and would be a public relations nightmare if it ever leaked. So he goes on to talk a little bit more about how much surveillance of drivers there was at Uber and uh, how many data breaches and issues and all kinds of things. But (laughs) that right there shows just how little respect he had for the drivers as people and as workers. He did not want them working for both, even though he obviously was not willing to give them any sort of incentive to continue working for Uber, right? Like, it wasn't like he was like, okay, I don't want you working for Lyft, so I'm going to offer you full-time wages and benefits. No, nothing like that. He just didn't want you to also work for Lyft. And so there was a ton of just really unethical things happening around how he dealt with that group of people. I I do think it's telling that we've gone this long and this is the first time we're actually talking about the drivers and Mm -hmm. the the way in which the drivers are treated as not employees but as contractors and how that sort of view that well they're not really part of our group you know Mm -hmm. like yeah they're affiliated with Uber but like they're not Uber employees and I think that that logic basically permeates almost everything that Uber does in relation to how they treat their drivers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we mentioned it earlier, but the tip thing was huge for drivers that Kalanick refused to put a tipping mechanism on the Uber app, which would not have been impossible. Lyft was doing it, Uh, but rather he just did it out of principle that he didn't think that they needed it. Well, it was like, oh, it'll slow down the streamlined process for the person getting out of the car. Like, it's one more thing they have to do. Like, dude. (laughs) No, it's one more thing they have to do to recognize this person's humanity. Gross. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. The thing that has always bothered me so much about, like, the quote-unquote gig economy and these kinds of contract-based employment things there's always incentives to start like these Uber drivers, especially when the company was first starting, there was a lot of like bonus, like sign up to drive bonuses and, and things that they got for driving. Um, but once you get in it, it's, it is very hard to make an actual living off of it. And Chris, you mentioned they, it's not like they get health insurance or benefits of any kind. And they're not guaranteed a wage. Yeah. And it's, yeah, they're the, what they were making would fluctuate all the time as well. But the other thing that isn't acknowledged in it is that you are not gaining any skills that you can then take and use to get out of Mm -hmm. this gig economy. You're not even like learning to cook food or something like, yeah, you're learning to drive, but not professionally. You already had a driver's license. I was going to say, you already knew how to do that when you entered the role or you wouldn't have been hired. Right. Well, one would hope. (laughs) Well, yeah, exactly. Who knows at this company? Yeah. So in one one of the parts of the book, Mike Isaac is talking about these employees who were accused of stealing sensitive information from Google when they left to start their own startup that ended up having some dealings with Uber. And one of the things that he highlights is that Google, of course, like did diagnostics on their their computers to see what kinds of files they had taken with them. And, you know, they're tech people. They know how to do these things. And they found that, among other things, one of those employees had searched 
Google for incriminating phrases, including how to secretly delete files from <laughs> Mac and how to permanently delete Google drives from my computer. And I have never felt more vindicated as a non-techie person that <laughs> even the tech bros don't know what they're fucking doing with 100%. their computers. That you Googled on your work laptop from which you were stealing files. <laughs> how do I delete said files? So this, oh, employee, this employee was someone who was making millions of dollars per year. <laughs> like, when you exit the company and go to a competitor... Google's gonna make sure that you're not taking anything. Like, obviously, they're gonna check. <laughs> it's I, so I, funny to me. Because he also, like, he, I don't know, he did something to his laptop to, like, scrub it or whatever. And it was still, like, you guys are so dumb. When will you figure out that nothing is ever permanently deleted from anywhere? Like, <laughs> yeah, like, unless you, you have thrown it know. in the Thames. <laughs> like, oh, God, it was so funny. Anyway, so that's my final thing that I wanted to point out, that no one knows how to delete anything. Not even <laughs> tech boy. There is no deleting anything. <laughs> All right, so my quote will transition us into the unanswered questions. My quote comes pretty early on in the book, but I think that it just kind of serves um, serves a good purpose. So the book, uh, in its early parts, discusses how Uber had entered into the Portland market at the ire of the, I believe, city council and uh, they were definitely not doing anything lawfully in Portland. You had to have permits and abide by regulations, and obviously Uber wasn't doing any of that. So, the quote, Kalanick and his forces had flouted laws in Portland and in scores of other cities. But ask a typical Uber employee at the time, and even some supporters years later, and they will tell you that they didn't see it that way. Uber was protecting its drivers while confronting what they saw as a corrupt taxi industry, that had been protected by bureaucracy and outdated regulations. Concepts like breaking the law weren't applicable, they believed, when the laws were bullshit in the first place. Kalanick was convinced that once everyone used the service, it would click. They'd understand that the old way was inefficient and expensive, and his way was the right way. So first, my first takeaway is he was right. Uh, he was totally right. He was totally right. Uh, everybody folded uh, because Uber was a better option. So... The laws mattered until they didn't. Uh, the the regulations and all the, that pushback basically was completely outweighed by the fact that the citizens in individual localities much preferred using Uber to the alternative, period. So he was completely correct. But, <laughs> but he Uber broke a lot of laws to get there. And it kind of leads me to my, my unanswered question. It's a completely unknowable question. Uh... How big could Uber have gotten had it always operated ethically? That okay. was my question too. Yes. <laughs> okay. That was well, mine I too. So, and I and I I kind of break it down into two parts, which is like legal ethic. Well, I maybe like three parts: legal ethics, driver ethics, and corporate ethics. And okay, so like legal That's ethics. Four. That's like seven categories. <laughs> no, it's three: legal, 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 legal driver, and corporate. Okay. 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 Yeah. Gotcha. I mean, so legal, I mean, specifically regulatory. Like, what if they actually went through the process of, like, applying to enter into new markets and, you know, trying to make sure that the local regulators were okay? And, I mean, it would have been so much slower. Like, I mean, and I, I don't know that they would have been able to raise venture capital at a fast enough pace that, to keep up with their I costs. Think. 
So I, yeah. I don't know that they would have lasted. I like I like just flat out lasted. And if they did, they'd be substantially smaller. They'd probably just now be entering, you know, they'd be in your Chicago or your San Francisco or your New York, but they wouldn't be in, in Indianapolis. No, exactly. Yeah. They wouldn't be in Indianapolis, let alone our hometowns. Yeah. Right. Um, right. So <laughs> they're I, still not in my hometown. <laughs> right. Like, we, we barely have people. In my we have town. a Dairy Queen, okay? That's it. We have a Walmart and a Dairy Queen. So, so uh, to the point of driver ethics, I think that it ends up being a bit of a similar story where, uh, you know, Uber has pretty limited costs as it relates to the drivers. They make a portion, Uber makes a portion of the fees, the drivers make the remainder of the fees, the drivers worry about their cars, the drivers worry about upkeep, insurance, etc. So, you know, Uber is pretty hands-off, which means that they didn't pay all these costs and they could, even while they were losing money, point this out to their investors and say, look, like we're making 20 to 25% of, of, the, of the fees. And so therefore, mm-hmm. like this is our sustainable business model. Mm-hmm. But yeah, what if they were paying a minimum wage? Or what if they yeah. were paying, you know, health insurance and benefits? I to don't these... appreciate that this is going in a libertarian argument. <laughs> it's not a libertarian argument. argument, And it's it's not really an argument in any direction. It's more just like, well, what if, like, they were operating differently? Well, if they were operating differently, I think, again, like, if they if drivers were employees... I think it would have been really hard for Uber to, number one, grow and enter new markets because you would have to do background checks, which I guess they already do. But still, it would like it's a different process with salaried employees or hourly employees. Yeah, um, You would have to interview people and like exactly. there would be a much longer hiring process. And that's and like think about my... like how much friction that is. That is a tremendous amount of friction. And so, again, Uber doesn't grow very fast, if at all. And the venture capital money, does it come in as fast and as, in as as great amount? I don't think so. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think my, so. My counter to that, I, I'm, I technically, uh, I agree with what you're saying because yeah. that was my question as well. And I, I tend to think that it's not possible to have grown as fast as they did without being unethical in some way. But my counter is that they were spending 40 to 50 million dollars. (laughs) If you had just stopped throwing away 50 million dollars a week on nothing, maybe you could have restructured your business model. (laughs) I think this gets to what I was going to say, which is that it's my key takeaway again, which is that I think that Kalanick's complete disregard for all authority made them uber and then after Mm -hmm. they became uber made them fail basically yeah and a big part of that is his willingness to disregard all laws and feel like they didn't apply to him and i know this mentality quite well because it's (laughs) my entire families uh (laughs) My my dad and my brother roast them, Kate. <laughs> it's but this is the thing, right? And we talked about this last time, actually, that all personality traits are double edged swords, and the positive to being somebody who is so unrelenting when it comes to going after what you want is that you are able to get what you want, and mm-hmm. you are a hard worker, and you are. Uh, able to do things that other people are not willing to do. And that often does yield some great 
consequences and some great outcomes. But it also means that there are negative consequences that you as a person who is so one-sided are probably not <laughs> very good at seeing or dealing with when they come up. And I think that's kind of the piece, which is that, like I said, it was a libertarian argument because I think that the argument is that by doing that, it allowed a business to grow into this gigantic thing, right? And it employs how many people now and it, it like boosts the economy, well, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, but, can I just say, I think it's that's your, just your frame of reference that it's a libertarian argument for because you could just as easily say that it's a leftist argument against that that this whole system is set up in such a way that operating unethically allows you to succeed. And so therefore, like you should, you know, if if you had a leftist frame of reference, you would say, therefore, get rid of the system. If you have a libertarian frame of reference, you would say, therefore, you know, the the laws and regulations are bullshit, which is well, you know, verbatim yeah, what the book says. But that's kind of what I'm saying is that if you are for this yes. system, yeah, yeah. then it is a libertarian mm-hmm. argument. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. To be clear, I, I don't want to come away with like saying, you know, the leftist viewpoint or the libertarian viewpoint is quote unquote correct. I just want to point out like the Uber story is one where laws and regulations were pushed aside. And it pains me to say this, but Travis was right. Like Travis was yeah. absolutely correct that the the benefits of the service would outweigh everything else. And that the laws were not important enough to keep, right? Yeah. Like these aren't laws in which it was directly hurting people uh in a way that it happened immediately. And therefore, I think people were more likely to let those rules fall by the wayside because they felt like they weren't important enough. But if you dig in a little bit deeper, the laws are really important because when they went into new markets and they were hiring like crazy and trying to uh, expand rapidly, one of the reasons why they had so many problems with the workers was because they weren't doing background checks in right. a lot of places, either as well as they should have been or as um, deep as they should have been. And so, yeah. yeah, I mean, it is one of those things where it's kind of like, okay, well, you broke the rules to be able to do this. And you were right that nobody cared about the rules. But as we look back on this in retrospect, should we have cared more about the rules? And yeah. I think the answer is probably yes to that as well. Yeah, I think it's, it's kind of like, I'm someone who empathizes with this, those laws were bullshit, so they didn't count mentality, because I think that (laughs) rules don't apply to me because I'm not stupid, okay? Like, I know how to be safe. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm the greatest person alive. Obviously, I don't have to follow that rule. I don't need to follow that. And I have empathy. Like, I'm not going to take advantage of someone. But the point is, rules like that have to exist because everyone that enters into this model does not have empathy and is not operating with everyone's best interests at heart. So those half those rules have to exist. Otherwise you get drivers who are there to assault people or whatever the case may be. So it's like, yeah, you don't need background checks if everyone is like hunky dory with each other, but they're not. That's why they exist. That so yeah. you're right. Like it I agree that it had to happen that way in order for them to grow at the pace they did. But there is an inevitable like end of this curve where you start to see the consequences start to outweigh the benefits i think outweigh the benefits Mm -hmm. so when you in your question what were you thinking were you thinking that if they had gone about this ethically that they would either just not have grown as fast or you think they would not have grown as large or both 
Uh, well, so what my question said was, do you think it is possible for a company to be this successful and remain ethical? Mm. So more what that I... Is, the way that is a much more leftist <laughs> way of putting it. <laughs> Absolutely. Because yeah. I'm not neutral on this. I, I right. tend to be more progressive in my thought. And yeah, I oh, was like... fine. It's our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not NPR, okay? Um, so <laughs> I... I don't think it was it would be possible for them to grow as fast without breaking the rules that they did. But I was more thinking of it as like once Uber got to a certain level and they were they they didn't need to worry about like dying overnight. You know, they had a lot mm-hmm. of like capital and they were in a lot of cities, et cetera. Why not at that moment? Didn't they start to think like if we don't start to fix our ethics problem and this mentality we have of like rule breaking and fighters and every man for himself we're gonna tank ourselves um and i what i wonder though is if if everyone was like me and you kate chris you as well i assume (laughs) if they were like ethically minded and like really empathetic people and and really cared about human beings would you be able to make this much money? Because I'm afraid the answer is no. And that bums me out so I'm afraid. Much. I'm afraid of the answer. Console me. Uh, yeah, I think the answer to that is that the reason why they didn't shift is because Travis Kalanick didn't see it as an ethical issue. He didn't see it as an issue well, at all. He saw it as an advantage. The reason why they got to that point was that mindset. So why not continue with that mindset? And yeah. again... You, you can't. There, there are different uh, needs from a founder, from a leader at that point in a company's journey than there are at the very beginning. And I don't think he was self-aware enough to be able to recognize that or recognize his, uh, his lack of ability to... <laughs> Yeah, it's like blind spots. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. His blind spots. And now's the point to mention the entirely unsurprising fact that Travis Kalanick is a big fan of Ayn Rand. Uh, (laughs) It informs his entire worldview. And you're right, Kate, that he sees it as an advantage. But more than that, he sees it as how the world, quote unquote, really is. Mm -hmm. And I think he had in his head that if he wasn't this level of aggressive, then Lyft or some other competitor would be this level of aggressive and, you know, would push them out. And I think that informed a lot of his actions. But again, it kind of clouded his viewpoint and gave him tunnel vision uh, and led to his eventual downfall. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the reason I think it is Im- essentially impossible as a, a very ethical company to out um, produce or compete with a non-ethical company. It kind of reminds me of like the Republican Democratic problem where Republicans are always going to be more willing to be unempathetic and like serve low blows than Democrats will be. And so there's this kind of like unfair pacing because if you're willing to to break the rules and be awful, you can usually get ahead <laughs> faster than someone who's like trying to follow the rules. You know, we've all been that person who's like, you have to walk. Like it's, you know, but so I think that when you are an ethical company working inside an unethical society, it is essentially impossible to get ahead faster than unethical companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, 
that's why I would say <laughs> that's why we have a government is to yes. help regulate, regulate people. some of those things, right? Because if the companies don't have an incentive to do it themselves, they they just won't. And mm-hmm. I think we see that with a lot of companies, not just Uber, but especially when it comes to the employees, if they don't have to be more ethical, if they don't have to spend more money to make their employees safer or more comfortable or have better lives, they yeah. just won't. And yeah. You know, there's nothing you can do about that except for incentivize them to do that or de-incentivize them doing it. And yes. I think that that's where a governing structure would come in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Kate, what is your uh, unanswered lingering question? So, my lingering question is not about the book. <laughs> um, What's your favorite cereal? <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite cereal? Uh, I just wanted to know, uh, do you remember your first time riding an Uber? Because I don't think I do. (laughs) So I just want, I wanted to know. So yes, I do. But I'm not sure that it was my first time actually being in one. Like I remember the first time I ordered an Uber. Okay. But I don't know that, I don't think it was the first time I had ever been in one because I'm fairly certain that I want to say it was our good mutual friend Carmela ordered an uber and we all went into the car and i thought it was strange um but (laughs) that was my first uber ride was when when somebody else had ordered it for me and then Mm -hmm. i learned about the app and then i downloaded it but i didn't i was i'm never the first on any trend so (laughs) yeah yes but i i the much more interesting story is the first time i took my stepdad uh in an uber i think it was actually a lift uh and for some context at this point he was uh in his 60s and uh he uh we got in the car and you know it was a quiet normal trip whatever car stops to let us out and he's like pulling out his wallet and meanwhile i'm already out of the car (laughs) and he was just like what are you doing The ride's over. <laughs> get out of the car. Get out of there, man. <laughs> ride and dash. And he's just like, he's he just now. like looking at me. I'm like, no, you're done. It's over. I, and he's like, but I have to pay. And I'm like, no, I already paid for it. Like it's, it's yeah. over. So yeah. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah. Recently, not recently, this has been like three years, but my mom was going to come visit me. She had to fly. And then the airport is like fairly far away, like a 40 minute drive from where I live. And I told her like there's a transit system, but it, you know, it's, it's easier to just get a lift if you want to pay for that. And she was like, Oh, I am not comfortable riding (laughs) in a car like that. And I was like, okay, you know, personally, I think that the transit system is more dangerous, (laughs) but you you gotta like make your choice. (laughs) But I was thinking about it. It's funny because I am very, I'm hyper paranoid about being murdered as I think most women should be since people are trying to murder us all the time. Yeah. I mean, that's part of it. But I was like, why does it not bother me as much to use a lift? And I realized it's because I have this completely false belief that because I called it with my phone, the person will respect the fact that they would be like caught by the police too easily. And I'm like, that would not save you from anything. Stop telling yourself that. I mean, if you have your location on, I guess it would help. It's true. Yeah. I don't know. I'm like, what kind of an idiot would be like, yeah, I'm going to murder the woman who just called this Uber with her phone. There's a record of it. But you know what? Murderers aren't always logical, so I should stop assuming. They are often not. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so that was my question. And I am 
ready to move into the rating system. Yeah. So I rated this book uh, 3.75 lift mustaches. <laughs> Damn it, that was my rating. <laughs> no way, you get the same one. Uh, and I, out of how many mustaches? Out of five. Okay. Uh, I thought it was really well written. It is a full deep dive into Uber. Anything you would ever want to know about the company, you got it. Uh, it's written by somebody who is uniquely uh, positioned to be able to write this book because he was there reporting on everything as it was coming out. And he did a spectacular job of doing that. Where it left me wanting more was the contextualization of, you know, how common were these practices among other tech startups? Uh, what was the environment in Silicon Valley at the time. I don't really think he goes into a lot of that. There's not a ton that he talks about other than just the Uber story and a little bit of Travis Kalanick's backstory. Uh, so yeah, that was my rating. It isn't my turn. I have to scramble to find a new rating system. <laughs> no, you can just uh, use the old one. No, I was, I was gonna, I was gonna say it's, it's for me, it's like yeah, like a four out of five, maybe like an eight and a half out of ten. And I think an eight and a half out of 10 gets you like a 7.7 on Pitchfork. So that's my... There you go. (laughs) Yes. I love it. For all that music you listen to inside the Uber. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It all connects. Molly, what was your rating? So I, in true tech bro fashion, picked three out of four Bitcoins. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Uh, the reason I didn't give it like 3.5 or 4 was because I noticed this thing throughout the book. Two things. First, it was kind of like he put a bunch of articles that he'd written as standalone pieces together into a book. Because every time he introduced someone that he had already talked about, he would re-describe them to you. Yes. And it was like, dude, I've been reading this book. I remember who you're talking about. Yes. Like There weren't that many characters he, that you couldn't under... Or that many people that he was talking about. The one guy that he... The one guy is six nine, and he could not yes. stop talking about. He how talked tall he was. about his like, height constantly. It. <laughs> it was like, dude, we get it. He's almost seven feet. That's crazy. <laughs> but, like, but we're over it. We're talking about Travis. Yeah, but it it would make sense if he was writing like fifteen twenty articles. Yeah, maybe every time you describe this person as tall, but when you put it together in a book, take out some of those descriptors, man. <laughs> like God. And then the other thing I I noticed was that he. I think the arc of the book was really good and it did make sense in the end. Like he was building to this crescendo of like the fall and then kind of what happened after that. But I noticed that the chapters did this thing where they would like build to something and then he would leave it unresolved. And I was like, what can you give me the point of this (laughs) microcosm story? Like what Mm -hmm. does this mean? And in the end it all felt like I get it what it meant, but I felt kind of like left hanging often instead of feeling resolution with each chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, but honestly, the thing that drove me the most crazy was how much he talked about height. Like, let it go. <laughs> <laughs> this is so real. And, you know, my brother is 6'9". My other brother is 6'7". My dad is 6'6". Six, six. I don't know. I'm a, I come from a very tall family. So to me, especially, it was like, oh my God, yes, okay. This guy is tall. We get it. Uh, but the other thing was, I kept telling Chris as I was reading this, that he would be like, Uber was doing this, and this was the problem. And then the next paragraph, but Uber had an even bigger problem. And then the next paragraph, <laughs> Uber had an even bigger problem. And like, honestly, he wasn't wrong. It was just like... <laughs> it's a rhetorical It's a rhetorical technique he uses a dozen times. Yeah. And it, I was fine with it, but mm. you're right. It was very noticeable of like, 
you read this problem and you're like, oh my God, this would set a company back significantly. And then it's like, and then there was even a bigger problem. Yeah. It's just like, how could there be a bigger wait, problem? Like, yeah, it was like, so people were doing coke at their desks and I'm like, ooh, man, that's, that's rough. And then it's like, but then there was sexual assault and you're like, geez. And then he's like, and then there was murder. And you're just like, oh my God. Yeah. What are we yeah. talking about? I do have to briefly explain the murder thing because I brought it up in the introduction. Yeah, we never awesome. talked about it. <laughs> People are going to be like, what? Who was murdered? Um, so what happened was that in the Mexico market, there were uh, cab drivers who were getting in this huge fight with the Uber drivers who were taking all of their money and their customers. And they actually uh, had taken a couple of the Uber drivers out and shot them and like burned their cars. Uh, and like this, you know, terrible things were happening all over the world. Like every market had its own issue. Like in Thailand, they were just partying like crazy and there were like strippers yeah. and coke everywhere. Yes. The New York office had like insane sexual harassment. Like mm-hmm. anyway, so I just had to, I couldn't get off the podcast without explaining <laughs> why I'm bringing up murder randomly. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I guess that brings us to our pop culture pairing. Uh, mine is a little bit lazy, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I enjoy it. It's the TV show Silicon Valley on HBO. It's a really funny look at a lot of this. The founder is a super awkward, gawky, uh, tech guy who, uh, is woefully unprepared to be the founder that is worshipped throughout (laughs) the series. And it makes for a lot of great comedy. So, uh, check that out if you're interested. Yeah, I I have a couple to throw out, um, but I, I'll say that I'm usually very interested in books about just kind of corporate events or corporate malfeasance. So uh, <laughs> there's just so much of it. <laughs> so in the malfeasance category, I'll put Bad Blood, uh, which is the story of Theranos, which was an out and out fraud. I mean, not no no ambiguity. Like it was a fraud. Um, so bad blood in the uh, just general like kind of like corporate drama, um, the I believe 1986, 1988 classic uh, Barbarians at the Gate, which is the story of RJR Nabisco, which was kind of an old timey company in retrospect. But it w- was on the one hand, a consumer products company that made food products. And then on the other uh-huh. hand, uh, they made cigarettes. Uh, so... Sorry, he was scream dreaming. What a sweetheart. What a sweetheart. Anyway, Barbarians at the Gate is considered usually like the classic book about corporate dr- drama. Um, it's it's very, very entertaining. So I would oh, recommend it. Nice. That sounds great. Um, mine is a podcast. So this is all great. We had lots of different things. It is called Foundering by Bloomberg. And it's about Adam Newman, who started WeWork. There you go. And it's a very similar arc to the Uber story. Like, they got tons of venture capital. They tried to go public. There was many disasters and revelations of, like, toxic work culture, etc. And it was fabulous. Uh, Easy to binge. I loved it. And the whole time that I was listening to it, I was like, yeah, this is what happens when you have like a narcissist, guys. This is like, ugh, why are you so stupid? This is inevitable. So you get to feel very superior too, which is great. Oh, that's the best. I This wasn't um, going to be my suggestion, but I do have to throw it out there that The Dollop, which is another comedy <gasps> podcast, has an episode mm-hmm. on Travis Kalanick. 
and <gasps> no. it's really fun. It's excellent. It's really, <laughs> oh, really excellent. I should excellent. listen to that. I love the dollop. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's just really fun to listen to because it focuses specifically on Travis Kalanick, the founder, uh, and less on kind of the business stuff that some of us get trapped up on. <laughs> Definitely not me. <laughs> what is a stop? Okay, I will. I will say that Bad Blood is less corporate ish. You know, it's mu- mm-hmm. probably more accessible. Uh, because it's not about an actual business. It's, it's just about, about a scam. It's just about a scam. <laughs> yeah. uh, Barbarians at the Gate is a little bit more than I would say even Uber, this this book about Uber. Um, but it is written, I would say, still very accessibly. <laughs> business for dummies. <laughs> <laughs> any any question you would have from reading it, you could Google it and find out pretty easily. You can call Chris personally. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to share Chris's phone number in the show notes. You just text him and be like, hey, Chris, explain business to me. <laughs> Don't worry. We do it every day. <laughs> Actually, I asked Kate, who then tells me what Chris has told her. So it's like a weird game of telephone, which is why I don't understand anything. <laughs> because I'm bad at explaining things that I didn't really learn in the first place. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a lack of education or intelligence. It's a lack yeah. of interest. We need yeah. to be very clear. That's why you don't remember any of it. Because who cares, really? <laughs> but I digress. <laughs> uh, it's really good.